Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This hurricane damage was like none I'd ever seen. Trees were just literally stripped of all foliage. Palm trees were on their side and they're meant to withstand, you know, winds of 100 miles an hour. And just to see the mud everywhere, the roads being broken, the ridges being washed out, it was apocalyptic. And I just could not comprehend how people can sit back and let this happen. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Have you noticed in the past few months or so, as the climate collapse crisis has got very, very real, how the focus has legitimately turned to the fossil fuel companies? The fossil fuel companies' concerted campaign over many decades to dodge blame by covering up the science that shows that they are in fact causing the problem and their 100% misleading personal carbon footprint messaging is kind of not cutting it anymore. I feel the collective is finally pointing the finger squarely at them and feeling comfortable to do so. To put it mildly, it's about time. Now, at the same time, we're suddenly seeing a run of legal cases around the world aiming to take down these corporate behemoths. There are hundreds of cases firing up around the world, and they are using the law in clever ways to do so. These new forms of climate litigation don't so much target a particular project's emissions, but focus on the company's responsibility for the climate crisis itself. More than two dozen US cities and states are currently suing big oil, alleging the fossil fuel industry knew for decades about the dangers of burning coal, oil and gas, and that they actively hid that information from consumers and investors. In the UK, a group I've recently connected with called Client Earth took Shell's board of directors to court, arguing that the company cannot achieve its highly suspect aim of net zero carbon emissions by 2050 with its current climate transition strategy. Well, what do you know? And its directors are therefore breaching their duty to shareholders. So far, however, I'm sad to say, these cases have had little success. But I came across a woman recently who, well, she's taking a novel approach, which when I read about it struck me as wonderfully wild and somewhat hopeful. 
So Missy Sims has been described by the New York Times as, I quote, the most surprising legal figure to emerge as the world grapples with the devastating impacts of a warming planet, unquote. She has 2.2 million followers on her TikTok account where she posts viral videos of her miniature Jack Russell Terrier. She's a Republican from a small Midwest town who dresses head to toe in Armani, Gucci and Fendi. She eats apparently mostly ice cream. She listens to the Bible on her iPhone and uses the Holy Spirit to guide her maverick decisions. And for more than a decade, she's been suing oil companies. And she's now the singular force behind a world-first creative legal gambit to make oil and gas companies pay for the devastation being wrought by climate change in Puerto Rico. Basically, Missy is currently leading a group of Puerto Rican municipalities who are suing the biggest fossil fuel companies in the world, including Exxon, Chevron and Shell, arguing that they are to blame for thousands of deaths and more than $100 billion US dollars worth of damages caused by Hurricane Maria in 2017. The suit is the first to claim that big oil's emissions were directly responsible for the damage from a specific weather event, and the first to argue that big oil was totally engaged in a decades-long conspiracy to downplay the effects of global warming. And here's the kooky bit. She's doing all this by taking the laws that she drew on to take down mobsters and turning them on big oil. It's all very, very intriguing and also hopeful. As I say, a number of incredible organisations are working at a similar tactic from other angles, but I thought Missy might be a great guest to talk us through the approach generally. The case also makes use of new findings that have shaken up the fight, including the January study that revealed that Exxon had made I quote, breathtakingly accurate climate predictions as early as the 1970s, which they kept to themselves. It also references the Shell Tina documents, which are absolutely fascinating and which were also kept under wraps. I'll also just flag that Missy was calling during a storm and so the internet connection was not that great. So the sound may not be at the quality that you're normally used to. Anyway, let's meet Missy Sims. Missy, where are you talking to us from? I'm in Princeton, Illinois. So it's about two hours southwest of Chicago. Okay. So I'm wondering if we could start perhaps with how you came to be in Puerto Rico, which then led you to filing this lawsuit, which if successful could really shift the dial on things and hold fossil fuel companies accountable for the damage they're causing to the planet and potentially if it could affect our chances of our own survival on the planet. But how was it that you came across this case? Why were you in Puerto Rico? So we have an office there. Milberg has about 40 employees at our San Juan office, and I go there about once a month for a week and work there. But you were working on a particular case, weren't you, at the time? Yeah, the opioid litigation, municipalities across the United States suing the manufacturers and distributors of opioid addictive medicine that were causing a strain on municipal budgets. So municipalities had bound together and filed lawsuits all over the country to hold those manufacturers responsible. Yeah, and you were doing a fair bit of that work at the time, but in 2017, of course, Hurricane Maria hit and you were there and you witnessed, I guess, the carnage that followed, but also the reaction from the country, from its leaders, from everyday people who 
from what I can gather, they're at the coalface of this climate collapse and are very alive to, to the issue. I mean, Puerto Rico is one of the front lines for the climate crisis. What got you engaged at an emotional level, I suppose? It looked like a bomb had been dropped off on Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Rico is named as the number one affected community in the world by climate change, not just hurricanes, floods, but vectors, heat, drought, everything affects Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico is in, sitting precariously in Hurricane Alley. So the way it's situated, they don't get warnings the way we do in the U.S. You know, we get to watch the guy in khakis on CNN talk about where it's going to go and when and so that we can, you know, make arrangements. They don't get that warning. They're at ground zero. And so this hurricane damage was like none I'd ever seen Trees were just literally stripped of all foliage. Palm trees were on their side and they're meant to withstand, you know, winds of 100 miles an hour. And just to see the mud everywhere, the roads being broken, the ridges being washed out, it was apocalyptic. And I just could not comprehend how people can sit back and let this happen. And you are aware that the community there really do point their finger at the fossil fuel companies, which is something that I think the bulk of the world hasn't really got into yet. But these countries, and I find, you know, there's specific nations that are close to Australia who are also at the front line, who are also experiencing climate change in a very real way, are also aware that there are certain governments, but also fossil fuel companies that are to blame here. Are you sort of surprised by that, that there is that awareness there and that there is a perpetrator in their minds? I, I understood it. <laughs> you know, it, it's it shows how effective they were at their deceptive marketing campaign when you have people that don't believe it's true. That just shows you how effective they were. Oh, totally. So the people of Puerto Rico are on the front lines. And of course, they they witness it every day. And we're starting to now, you know, now that it affects white people, <laughs> people are starting yeah. to wake up and take notice. Yeah, it's got pretty real very much this summer, this Northern Hemisphere summer. Well, we probably should backtrack before we get into the nitty-gritty of how this case is playing out, but this is not the first time you've taken on fossil fuel companies. I think in Illinois, you used littering laws to get these fossil fuel companies, such as Exxon and Chevron and so on, to pay for the environmental damage that they had caused there from a littering point of view. How did that work? Because that's quite an innovative way of getting at them. So... In law school, I worked at the local sheriff's department. I was a deputy radio jailer, and so I have a a law enforcement background. I went on to prosecute traffic's misdemeanors, DUIs at the state's attorney's office while I was in law school. So I have a prosecutor mentality, not an oppressive prosecutor mentality, but just a sense of justice, you know? And every day my mother would say to us growing up, what did you do to help other people today? You know, so that was kind of your rent for your place here on earth was every day look for opportunities to help people. And so that was my way to do that was to help victims. And through a serious course of events, I didn't become a prosecutor, a criminal prosecutor, but I started working for a local lawyer who was one of the preeminent municipal prosecutors uh, since he came home from World War II in 1945. His name was Bill Wimbiscus. 
And so he represented numerous cities throughout North Central Illinois. So I'm the one that went to the board meetings and went to the Zoning Board of Appeal meetings and uh, went to court every Tuesday and Friday for ordinance violations, for prosecuting people for having, you know, dog poop in their yard or tall weeds or broken windows. And, you know, I prosecuted people for owning a duck in town and, you know, just all those things (laughs) that you have to do as a municipal prosecutor. And so... Uh, but I wasn't raised to be a bully. We were raised to help people. And my boss wasn't either. So he would start every day in prayer about really helping the communities that we serve. And the people that I prosecuted as a municipal prosecutor were, they're good people. They're not harming anybody. They didn't know they couldn't have a duck in town. You know, they didn't, (laughs) maybe didn't have time to pick up some dog poop that their neighbor complained about. You know, they weren't hurting anybody. And, And I wasn't raised to be a bully. And so, when I was at a board meeting in August of 06, and Depew, one of our cities that we represented, was the 14th worst environmental disaster in the country. So Exxon, CBS, Viacom, and other industries had a zinc smelting operation there in Depew, which helped create film for the film industry. When, when everything went digital in the 80s, everybody left town and left uh, mud puddles as blue as the sky. And so, you know, they had the highest MS rate in the country again. You know, we have a very high minority population and no one seemed to care, you know, and they weren't looking at cleaning it up. And I said to the director of the EPA, I said, if this happened in a white community, you would clean this up. You would not have blue mud puddles in a white community. This is this is absolutely wrong. And so we just kept getting hit everywhere we went to about trying to increase the level of cleanup. But what people don't understand is that on Superfund sites or RECRA cleanup sites, that the value of the property is a factor. When they look at how they're going, what level they're going to clean it up, they look to see the value of the property. Now that is institutional racism. There's no other way to look at it because Mm -hmm. then it's okay to pollute in, in communities of color. You'd clean it up if it was a white community. If this was Winnetka, these blue mud puddles would be cleaned up. So that just really ignited in me my like f- sense of justice. And I was like, no, we're not going to sit back and take this. Sorry. And so, you know, I was at a board meeting in August of 06 and the mayor, who I knew since I was a little girl, I used to run track with his daughter. And he said, Missy, what can we do? And I said, we're going to sue him. And he said, can we? I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so I went home and I took a run and that's where I get alone with the Holy Spirit. And I'm just like, help me. Help me help these people. And he said, find them. And I thought, you know, it's something I do every day. I find the average person for these mundane events. Why can't I find the biggest corporations in the world? They don't get a pass. And so we have a doctrine in Illinois, and most states have the same doctrine called nullum tempus accurate regi. And it means no time runs against the king. And we borrowed it from English common law. And basically it means that a municipality's rights should not be held hostage because a previous administration had slept on its rights, if you're seeking the public good. So really time stands still when you represent a municipality. And I've you know, been a city attorney since 1995. And so I know all the ins and outs of municipal law. And the, and the reason municipal law is so effective is because for years, for decades, we have beat up on the little guys and municipalities have been able to really perfect its authority. We have more authority than states or federal government. We can declare yeah, right. anything a public nuisance. 
Okay. Try painting your house blue in Albuquerque or Santa Fe. Try it. Right. I mean, there are certain colors you cannot even paint your house. So municipalities exercise this almost unfettered authority. And for years, you know, I use that against the little guy. And I'm like, I welcome the opportunity to use it against mm-hmm. the big guys because it really leveled my sense of justice. And, and, you know, Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. And so we do not bully people, pick on people. We help the orphans and the children. And so I read through the entire EPA code when I took that run after I came home and I didn't see anywhere in there that, that said I couldn't. So that's the way preemption works is preemption. We, everyone had assumed that a city could not do anything while the feds or the state was studying it, right? That we were basically had to sit back and wait. Well, that's not the case. So I didn't see anything in the federal law that preempted the town from doing something. So then I call a friend of mine and she represents the big companies. And I said privately to her, I said, hey, if I do this, will I look stupid? And because I didn't care if I won or lost, like I, you know, I just didn't want to look stupid. I didn't want to get thrown out in court for something I'm missing. And she said, nobody's ever tried it before. Why not? So Mm -hmm. with that, I just put blinders on when people said to me, oh, you can't do this, whatever. I'm like, well, you know, I think I can. And Mm -hmm. so I talked to my boss the next day and I said, hey, what do you think? And And he was all behind me and he was quite a bit older. Like it was him and I and our two secretaries against an army of lawyers at Exxon, CBS, and Viacom, an army of them. And so we we find them with littering in traffic court, the way if you flicked a cigarette butt, we would find you for that, you know? But the way it's set up, at least in Illinois, for a non-home rule unit is you can find $750 a day every day until they clean it up. So that's a lot of money, okay? How much were they fined? Well, it you know, the case was eventually resolved. I'll just put it that way. But they could have sought $750 a day every day until it's cleaned up and it's still not cleaned up. So, you know, that that's the way littering works is that you, the burden's on you to clean it up. Okay. And so we find them. We got dismissed out in the trial court. It went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And for the first time, uh, a federal court had ruled that there was no preemption between the federal government and a local unit in terms of a Superfund's cleanup site. So with that opinion, then I went on and represented another little tiny town in Illinois against Shell and ConocoPhillips for a refinery. And did you win that one? We settled that one as well. Bravo, bravo. So what I find really interesting is this next case that you've been involved in and you're very much leading in Puerto Rico, which has hit headlines because it is, once again, very innovative in the way that you've decided to use the laws. Can you talk us through which laws you're using for this particular case? How how are you getting these fossil fuel companies in this particular instance? In the lawsuit that we filed in the District Court of Puerto Rico, it's the first lawsuit filed that is actively pending in federal court. And we had to allege certain federal statutes to get us in federal court. And two of those statutes were racketeering and also antitrust violations. 
Yeah, talk us through that because, I mean, there's a lot of listeners here from around the world that don't understand US laws necessarily. But I think from what I understand it, you've used a law that's often used to get drug traffickers and, you know, you know the mob, basically. Can you talk about how that law is working in this instance? So it's really not that innovative. We use it all the time in other litigations. In the emission cheat scandals, we used it. In opioids, we used it. And there was a case in Illinois that I wasn't involved in it, but it was involved State Farm and a sitting Illinois Supreme Court Chief Justice that was used in that case. So racketeering is really quite frequently used. The fossil fuel industry uses it against protesters, right? So they've used it on their behalf. They used it against Steve Donzinger for the Chevron case. So it's used a a lot. Really, racketeering is based in monopoly. Okay, so when you're trying to work together with somebody else to fulfill the enterprise's purpose, whatever that enterprise is, that is when someone can come in and say, hey, I was harmed by that enterprise. So typically in racketeering cases, you don't have anything in writing. You have some tacit agreement, quasi agreement, wink, wink, nod, nod. So sometimes the enterprise, you don't have to have that overt, you know, I signed up for hit. Here's my you know, signature on the bottom line that I'm joining this enterprise. What you have is you have to show for a racketeering case that there is an enterprise. And what an enterprise is, is more than one entity outside of itself that coordinates with some other entity to fulfill the purpose of that enterprise. So really, it's not that novel. These lawsuits are done all the time. It's just that this was the first time it was done in a climate litigation. So in this case, the conspiracy that we're talking about, from what I understand, is that these fossil fuel companies got together and withheld or covered up science for 30 years that essentially did confirm that their enterprises were causing the heating of the climate and the atmosphere. Can you just flesh that out a little bit further? Because I think in particular, there was a a memo that Shell issued in 1998 that predicted that a series of violent Mm -hmm. storms would hit the eastern coast of the United States And that following the storms, there would be a class action suit against the US government and fossil fuel companies on the grounds of neglecting what scientists, including their own, have been saying for years, that something must be done. And that this knowledge was was covered up. Yeah, that's called the Tina memo. And Tina means there is no alternative. But let's, let's go back from Tina. Because since the 50s, The fossil fuel industry, particularly the oil industry, had been studying in earnest the carbon problem. That's how they phrased it, the carbon problem. Okay, And they really had no, from what I can gather, they had no preconceived like, hey, this is what we're going to do with this information. They were literally, the scientists were studying it in earnest. And at the same time, they were trying to decide how they can protect their own oceanic equipment against the rising sea. So part of it was also to protect their own physical assets when they're drilling in the ocean. Okay. In 1978, there was an intern at Exxon who they said to him, hey, put together a compilation of all this. You know, let's give us a summary of this. So this intern in 1978 creates this uh, memo and in it, he makes this graph. And in the graph, 
he puts on one axis is the year, on the other axis is the temperature, and then in the middle, plotted out, is the carbon in the atmosphere. And so in this 1978 memo, they predict where carbon's going to be in the atmosphere, how much warmer the world's going to be, and what date that's going to be on. That is accurate today. And then, though, they didn't know what to do with this information. So if you read the complaint, you see that we're going, well, wait a second. Exxon says, okay, now what do we do? So then they go to their board and the board's like, well, we're not making yogurt here. You know, (laughs) that was kind of their response, you know. And so then they were at this crossroads is do we what do we say about this? What do we do? Well, this this intern actually suggested a carbon budget so that this doesn't happen. Yeah. What did they do with it? They said no. And they didn't just continue production as usual. They actually increased production called the Great Acceleration. So they knew they had a window of time to get at these fossil fuel bases, and they, hurry, they needed to hurry up and do that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, so they they sped it all up almost so that before they could get found out and before oceans rose and jeopardised their own infrastructure. It's like, let's just get in there hard and fast before we get found out. Well, you have to understand, though, the way publicly traded companies work. Those are assets on their balance sheets. That was a a business decision, let's put it that way, that if, if they abandoned their fossil fuels in the ground, it would have a devastating effect for their balance sheet. You know, from their perspective, Tina meant there is no alternative. This is what's going to happen. And if you read the Tina memo, which I suggest everyone in the world reads the Tina memo, but it talks about Amazon. It talks about online shopping. It talks about the world that we're living in right now. It predicted all of those things. It predicted that we were going to be running products more. We're going to have less, you know, office fronts. It really predicted it. And in that situation, it also predicted that the world was going to be made up of environmentalist vigilantes, you know, who would call them out on their conduct. And so that was one of the Tina scenarios was that there would be a series of violent storms that was going to hit the eastern seaboard of the United States 
and that there would be a class action lawsuit they predicted in 2010 to hold them accountable for what they knew and they withheld that information. But it's not just withholding the information. It was also twisting and saying what they knew wasn't true. So if you read our lawsuit, it's about how they promoted their products improperly. You know, basically they used influencers to say that climate change wasn't real, don't worry about it, they're a bunch of crazy, libtard, whatever, you know, but they knew it wasn't true. So that's the racketeering part of it is that they used the U.S. mail and wire, which is basically money and the internet or the mail to perpetuate something that they knew was not true. So those are the predicate acts in the racketeering enterprise. Okay, so where is the case at? You filed the lawsuit at the end of 2022. Where is it at right now? So it's still in the pleading stages. The defendants will get an opportunity to file their responsive pleading, which will be a motion to dismiss. That'll be filed sometime in September. There will probably be an amended complaint. That's usually just the way things work. And then there will be another motion to dismiss, probably filed in you know late 2023, and be ripe for a decision sometime in the summer of 2024. What do you think might be the outcome at the end of all of this? I mean, you know, we sue for damages. You know, I'm not a policymaker. If, if you hire me to represent you because you've been injured in a car accident, like I'm not going to sit there and go, well, I don't know that poor guy who did it. You know, we might put him out of business. That's not my concern. My concern is seeking damages for my client, you know. So in terms of policy, I'm not a politician. I'm a lawyer, so I don't really... It doesn't affect me. Yeah, that's what this mechanism is really about because I think a lot of people listening are aware of just the gridlock that governments are at. You know, policy is not shifting fast enough and so that's why hearing about these lawsuits that are going for damages is quite exciting. It's another avenue that seems to be getting some traction really in the last sort of six months or so. There's all kinds of cases that are being filed across the US but also around the world. Broadly, if you were to win this and you were going to file for damages, what are the implications? You know, will this mean that it'll sort of open things up for other similar suits around the world? Well, they're not going to stop. I mean, even even if our case gets dismissed, there's so many other ones that are out there. You know, they can't stop us. You know, in the opioid, let's compare it again to the opioid litigation. In the beginning, there was only three lawsuits on file. Two of them were dismissed. The only count that survived a motion dismissed was the city of Chicago's ordinance violation. And that's what I knew I wanted in because I saw that the ordinance violation was the one that survived the motion dismissed. And look, $50 billion later, you know, we've held the opioid manufacturers responsible. So it takes an effort. It takes, you know, bringing this to light in different jurisdictions with state court, federal court. One of them is going to get past a motion dismiss. In fact, in some of the cases that are already on file, they have proceeded past a motion dismiss. Some of them were waiting on those decisions. So even if it's not in my case, our case on behalf of Puerto Rico, it will happen in, in another mm. jurisdiction. We'll be able to you know, get there. So, you know, they can't stop us. It's, yeah. it's so one of us is going to go to a jury trial. So what do you think has caused this particular case in Puerto Rico to get so much attention? And like there's, you know, the New York Times has done a feature on all of this. There's articles, you know, in The Guardian about this particular case. Why is this one significant? I mean, probably because of the racketeering count and how in-depth the complaint was. It's 250 some pages long. 
The racketeering case statement is 50 pages long. The exhibits are thousands of pages long. So probably that, just the sheer magnitude. But it's also the first lawsuit, not the only lawsuit, because the heat dome case was filed after us, but it's the first lawsuit that alleges a single event. So most of the other lawsuits were about future rising sea level, not to discount those, but it's just that this was the first single event. And what Mm. we're seeing right now also is insurance companies pulling out of states because they can't insure it anymore. You're seeing once climate change starts affecting white people, we'll change our tune. And I think that that is, you know, now that you're seeing climate change affecting, you know, the Midwest and the South. And the fact that you can't insure your, you know, nice middle class home in big parts, big parts of of the world now. I mean, that's that's often a white person issue, right? Yeah. You look at the bridge that was washed out in, in Florida. I couldn't help but you know, like think, it's like, well, wait a second. Do you know how many bridges were washed out in Puerto Rico? People had to bury their own family members because they couldn't get them to medical care. But a bridge gets washed out in Florida and the whole world goes crazy. And I'm thinking, yeah, but in Puerto Rico, I mean, this is how it affects that socioeconomic level that we don't usually want to hurry up and feel sympathy for. I mean, 4,645 people died from Maria, you know, and they died not just from flooding, whatever, but from all the after effects of it, not being able to get to medical care, not being able to to help out a heart attack or something like that. And they couldn't even get the coroner to come and bury. They had to bury their own family member in their front yard. I mean, this is mm. this is apocalyptic. I think Puerto Rico just has a lot of different elements to it that maybe the world has, you know, felt now we were waking up to that. But I, I don't think it's just what happened to Puerto Rico. I think it's what's happening currently right now. People are starting when they see the smoke from the Canadian wildfires affecting mm. you in Illinois. I'm smack dab in the middle of Illinois. And we had bad air quality from the wildfire smoke in Canada, you know, yeah. and I and I think that helps people wake up. But again, again, it just shows how effective their campaign was. That's what it shows, it's how effective their campaign was. But the tide has turned very suddenly, I feel. I feel it's really been in the last couple of months that people are really feeling confident and have some conviction in being able to point the finger at the fossil fuel companies. And that is a recent thing. And I think that that misinformation campaign, we're suddenly waking up to it and, you know, there's a reversal happening. You know, we're turning it all back on the fossil fuel companies now and that's why I think cases like the one that you're running is so important and we're all watching these kinds of cases. It's interesting, Shell has said, you know, and I quote, we do not believe the courtroom, and this is, this is I'm seeing this happen in similar cases around the world. They come out and say the courtroom's not the right venue to address climate change. You know, this, is, this needs to happen with legislation. It shouldn't be happening in the courtroom. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Well, I mean, that's what we do. It shouldn't be happening in the courtroom. What? So we're going to just close the courthouse doors to everybody? Like if you're injured? Oh, no, it shouldn't be happening in the court. You know, let's, you know, I know you were injured in a car accident, but this should really be in the courtrooms or in the legislature. So let's just close the courtroom doors. I mean, that's that's against every aspect of American jurisprudence. I mean, could have, would have, should have. Then maybe you shouldn't have done what you did. 
right? If you yeah. don't want it in the courtroom, then maybe you shouldn't have committed predicate acts that would cause us to file a racketeering charge against you. So, I mean, that that's, again, just, I think, pandering to the people and trying to say, hey, you know, this isn't the place we want to be. Well, guess what? You're going to be there. You're going to be in the courtroom, whether you like it or not. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, these fossil fuel companies use the courtroom on a regular basis to get what they need and want. It's their preferred location for getting shit done. But speaking to politics, I did read somewhere that you are a Republican. Is that right? You know, I don't I don't do politics. I really don't. I have I've been a campaign treasurer for both Republicans and Democrats. I've supported both parties. I really don't drink the Kool-Aid of either party. Okay, Okay. like I just don't. But I, uh, if I vote in a primary, I usually pull a Republican ballot. Just the, that's the, the family has always kind of done so. So, and that's how you declare whether you're a Republican or Democrat is just the primary. So, you know, I am not a politician, never will be, but if people want to check my voting record, yeah, that's yeah. true. Oh, the only reason I ask that is because, you know, I, I tend to find from afar, but I follow American politics quite closely, their engagement in the climate crisis and in the equity issues, the equality issues associated with the climate crisis seem to be quite lacking. In fact, they rally against them. Does that feel like a clash for you or do you feel that, you know, you're able to separate, I guess, the courtroom from from politics? Well, I I don't get involved in politics. Like I I really don't engage. I would say I'm progressive. Uh, You know, I, I guess the way we were raised and all the Republicans that I know in my area is we don't judge people. You know, you're, you, when you talk, you're Eisenhower Republicans, you know what I mean? The ones who voted for the Civil Rights Act, who were progressive in terms of helping out minorities. You know, I think people tend to forget that Republican base mm. and they're looking at more of what's currently going on as if it defines all of Republicans. And so I think when you look at people that are historically, their families have historically, you know, geared a little bit more one side than the other, that doesn't mean that they subscribe to whatever Kool-Aid the current party is selling. You know what I mean? So I would say I'm pretty progressive. I don't engage in, you know, bullying or what certain factions of the Republican Party are doing, you know? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking Trump and he's obviously leading the race at the moment as presidential candidate for the Republicans, I mean, he's committed to disengaging from the Paris Agreement if he's back in power. And I mean, that's just the beginning. I mean, that stuff's real. And I imagine, you know, that would be very compromising given your Christian values and the work that you do and your commitment to equity. But I take on board that your arena is the courtroom for 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 working on all of this and I respect that fully. I'm just wondering where you feel this approach of suing fossil fuel companies, taking it to the courtroom, where do you think this will head? Do you think that this is the most hopeful way to, I guess, arrest increasing climate emissions? Do you feel that this is going to be the most effective tool? Well, again, I'm not a policymaker. You know, I mean, I wish we didn't have to do this as lawyers. I wish we didn't have to right wrongs, right? Mm. I wish we didn't have to do the opioid litigation. I wish I didn't have to find these companies for putting hazardous waste in people's property. I wish I didn't have to do that, but I have no choice, right? Because it's, it's, my client has been harmed and I have to see that through. So in a, in a perfect world, this should have never happened. 
but it has. And so policy, what happens after the fact is a, my concern. My concern is being able to seek damages and justice for Puerto Rico. Hmm. Are there other similar cases that you're following around the world? I know that, you know, there's various organisations in the UK. I think Client Earth is doing some work. They've just lost a case, unfortunately, against Shell just last month. But they've, you know, they, they run cases on behalf of small island nations, for instance, against governments, but also the fossil fuel companies. Is it something that you're following closely? Do you feel that this tactic is gaining momentum? The the fact that there's so many lawsuits all over the world show that there is momentum and that it people just have to keep trying and to keep having their say in court and representing their clients and courts are going to get dismissed. I mean, that's how you make case law is getting dismissed. Mm. You have to get dismissed to make case law. Excuse my ignorance, but how does getting dismissed then lead to a change in the case law? It's a it's a doctrine we call stare decisis. And what courts look to as precedent is stare decisis, what other cases are out there. Okay. So if I'm filing a new novel case like I did in Depew and I sue him for ordinance violations, trial judge dismissed me. He dismissed me. So he went to the Seventh Circuit and the Seventh Circuit said, well, wait a second, there's no preemption. So that's how you make case law is you get dismissed so that you can go up on appeal and create the law to where then another court will look at that and agree to it. So you you have to get dismissed to make case law. And when do you think there will be an outcome to this case in Puerto Rico? So if we have a favorable decision in June, then we will start the process to depose all of the defendants and get them under oath and get their, you know, scientists and things like that under oath. And then, you know, usually these cases take three or four years to develop into an actual trial. So I would say the trial wouldn't be until 2028 or 2029, if, if then, because I'm sure, you know, they will be trying to appeal certain decisions. If we win the motion dismissed, they'll try to do an interlocutory appeal. In the lawsuits that were filed in the state court, you saw that those were filed in what, 2014, 2015, and the Supreme Court finally decided, no, those all belong in state court in 2023. So they have been working on, you know, wow. for seven, eight years just on jurisdiction, and we haven't even gotten to try the case yet. So they'll, they'll do everything they can to delay because delay equals dollars. Yeah, delay is a tactic that they've used, and it is the latest tactic being used by, you know, there was the denialism, doomism, and now it's all about delayism. Mm -hmm. Just let's put it and distracting. Let's just keep putting it off, keep putting it off so that we can rape and pillage, you know, until we completely get found out and get told to stop. Unfortunately, you know, as the UN and, and so on have pointed out, we don't have that much time. You know, we've got until 2030 to get this sorted. So, yes, these delay tactics are extremely worrying. Missy, thank you so much for joining us here on Wild. I'm sure everybody listening will be very keen to follow this case. My personal feeling is that we do need to pay attention to these cases because, yes, they're going to take a long time. But in the meantime, we can publicise, keep these kinds of issues in the headlines, name and shame these fossil fuel companies. At the very least, it puts the kibosh on their misinformation campaign. Great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
kept this episode a bit short and snappy. I really just wanted to profile a climate initiative that seems to be taking off in tandem with a collective pissed offness with the fossil fuel industry. It's all coalescing at the same time. And I kind of feel it'll head somewhere in the next year or two. Now, most cases are being dismissed, but as Missy explains, this creates the case law, which I guess is a silver lining. I'm not sure that all of this will happen fast enough, given that we need to have things sorted by the end of this decade. But I feel the sort of the headline exposure that these cases are bringing about and the fact that these cases are also exposing the conspiracies is a key part of the power of all of this. And it may cause big oil to make changes regardless. I think it's a bit of a watch this space situation. And in the meantime, Missy's right. It is worth reading the Shell Teen Up memo. And I'll put that in the show notes. I'll see you next week.